a famous horse trainer by the name of Monty Roberts. He has this, owns this large ranch in California, and he not only raises horses, but he also trains other trainers. Um, and he employs sort of his own method. He doesn't go with a standard method in horse training. Now, I'm a city guy. I had to read all about it, but it intrigued me uh, the way that they would go about training horses. He was exposed growing up to a very heavy-handed father, and the father sort of broke him the way he would break a horse. And he would take these horses, and he would instill enough fear and intimidation, even sort of violence, if you will, until they would sort of bow and take the bit and the bridle. And he would tie them up and, and kind of subject them to this sort of domineering extent. Except Monty Roberts made an observation. And while he was out on the plane with all, watching just wild herds of horses, he made an observation that informed the way he was going to break a horse. I think this is really significant. And what he noticed was the natural selection. When you had a herd of horses and a new horse wanted to enter into that herd for protection, there was a courtship that unfolded, a sort of call and response. There would be a lead mare that would separate from the herd as this new horse was coming up. And, and the lead mare would take a very aggressive stance. She'd pin her ears back and she'd sort of take the stance with looking straight into the gaze of the, of the new horse. And the new horse would recognize this and sort of lower its head and, and, and lower its gaze in almost a submissive uh, stance. And then the lead mare would turn sideways, almost a flank, because we know that as a, as a flight animal, not a fight animal, horses aren't gonna, so, kind of as an act of, okay, I'm letting you come closer. I'm making myself vulnerable. The new horse would take a few more steps to which the lead mare would assume the same posture with the ears pinned back, almost like, are you coming on my territory here? And this would un uh, unfold a couple of different times till finally the lead mare and the new horse were standing within touching distance, oftentimes being able to rub their own face. It's a beautiful picture of a kind of call and response, which is actually how every great relationship is allowed to form. The horse would join the herd and be in only after they would have this sort of call and response. I think when we talk about great relationship, it's not just call and response. It's talking about invitation and challenge. It's talking about how we come with surrender as much as we come with an offering. And so we have this great picture that comes to us about also how we come into fellowship with God. If you've ever been in a social environment where someone thought they were bringing um, like God's greatest gift to the workplace, God's greatest gift to the band, God's greatest gift to your neighborhood, you know how off-putting it can be. If you've had someone come thinking they have so much to give and they might, maybe it's a, a, a new boss, a new supervisor, a new coach, a, a new teacher, but it's not always received right. I think every great relationship starts with an invitation and a challenge. It starts with a call and response. It starts with both a surrender uh, and a contribution. And again, what I would simply say is this represents how we enter into deep fellowship with God. 
What we like to do is to be able to come with our offering. We like to come to church with our strength. We don't like to show up sort of with a limp because my marriage isn't working out. We don't like to show up because everyone else there cleans up so well. They look so happy. They look so nice. What we like to do is get our act together before we come into community. What God is saying to us is saying, I already know you and love you as you are, so why don't you come as you are? And what we learn is to be able to enter into great relationship is to be able to give as much as we learn to receive, even though receiving, whether it be a favor, acts of kindness, generosity, makes us largely uncomfortable. I would ask the question, if you're one of those people who has a hard time receiving in any level, I would challenge is that an indication of your view of how you interact with God? Because what we're really saying is, I don't actually need God's grace. I'll pull my act together and be a little mm, more lovable than the next person. I don't know. I don't want to put words in your mouth. But it stands to reason. If we have a hard time receiving from another, is it also true that we have a hard time receiving God's grace, God's forgiveness, God's mercy? Do we let ourselves beat ourselves up over the things that we kind of replay in our minds? What I want to do is look at this theme that runs throughout the book of John, where John keeps using this phrase of Jesus, not my own. Uh, and so if you have your Bibles, I want to look at a, a passage of scripture tonight and do kind of a deep dive in John chapter 7. Um, and uh, these are Jesus's words, but they also represent a sort of a call and response, a sort of courtship of how we come into greater fellowship with God. Um, and normally we might want to just give something up or go without during Lent. Um, and this is not a bad thing, uh, so long as the focus is, in, is on Christ and not on us. But I wonder if during this Lenten season, we could make our focus... Uh, more about, uh, more on making our sacrifice about uh, for good for someone else. In other words, we could maybe make it our intent to give life to another. Um, so in J John chapter 7, there's this passage where Jesus shows up to what's called the Feast of Tabernacles. And he stands up and, and this is a, a, a kind of, I'll unpack what this feast was because it's really significant in, in, in time. Um, but Jesus stands up. Uh, kind of halfway through, and, and it says this in verse 14. Not until halfway through the feast did Jesus go up to the temple courts and he began to teach. The Jews were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having studied? And Jesus said, my teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. And if anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. So Jesus stands up and he talks about these words, my life, my authority. This is not my own. And what he does is he defers to something larger than his life in that moment in history. He reminds them of God's covenant and our response to him. In other words, what I would say is being a part of God's story is so much bigger than when you got introduced to God. When we begin to understand God's story, it started in the beginning 
of time, not the beginning of my small existence. So when we grow into relationship with God and want to say, God, where am I in your story? We have to understand that it started way beyond us. And this is what the Feast of Tabernacle was really about. The Feast of Tabernacle could be compared to a couple of things. On the one hand, it wasn't unlike our Thanksgiving. It was at the end of the agricultural year. It was a time of harvest where as a people, they would gather together and have this seven day long feast. And they would recognize not just their blessing and their abundance. It was a discipline to say, all of this comes from God. Yes, I worked the soil. Yes, I worked the fields. Yes, I did all of the irrigation. Yes, I planted. Except that ultimately God gave me the strength, the, 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 the water, the seed. God caused it to grow and I'm simply recognizing God as the source. I sometimes think we need this kind of physical demonstration to remember God as the source. Do we not? Now, what's interesting is they would also come at this time and they'd recognize that because of this great abundance, there was always a chance to begin again. This was an agricultural mindset. We've lost this because we're just industrialized people. But when you come to the end of your harvest year and you're celebrating a great harvest, the abundance of God, the provision of God, the one thing that you can spiritually also celebrate is the chance to begin again. And now he's talking personally to the people of God. And so the festival of tabernacles comes because they would build this leafy hut. It was a leafy structure, kind of like a lean-to, if you've ever done or watched survival shows, because I haven't actually built my own lean-to, but Bear Grylls has. And so you have this picture. For seven days, they would go outside of their bed, outside of their home, before there was REI, before there was little inflatable mattresses, they would go outside and for a week sleep under a little shelter because they didn't want to get too far from their past. What was in their past? God's deliverance out of Egypt, God marrying them on Mount Sinai. This was a remembrance of God's deliverance out of Egypt. You were once slaves, don't ever forget that you used to be slaves. And then he takes them up Mount Sinai, which is this great picture of marriage. You're my people. I'm taking you as my own. And so every year, there would be three primary pilgrimages that would unfold. One of the big three, so you had Passover, uh, and then you had Pentecost, but then you had uh, this, this other one called the Feast of Tabernacles, where people would gather in Jerusalem, and they would come, not looking for Motel 6, they would come and just make it, in fact, if they lived in Jerusalem, they would leave their own home, and they would camp for a week to remember not that their story started here, but their story started with their ancestors, and God's been faithful long before they've been even alive. I find in my life, I need an interruption because I often become the center of my life and I think about how things are affecting me and I, I realize my own limitations and I, and I realize sometimes my own thoughts about scarcity. And if I can discipline myself to remember God's faithfulness, God's provision, God's covenant, it gives me a kind of wisdom 
that I miss when I'm the center of my own life. And so this is what Jesus does, is he comes into the Feast of Tabernacles. You can imagine what Jerusalem's like. It's probably a mess of scattered leaves and and people with their little lean-tos all over the place. And he stands up. Um, He joins it halfway through. But then uh, if you you drop down a a couple of verses, uh, um, and it it starts, let me see, where did he go? Uh, It it shows up um, right in verse... Uh, oh, phooey. where did it go? Oh, there it is, 37. Uh, and, and he says, On the last and the greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood up in a loud voice and he says these words, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, and the, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow. So we have this picture of God showing up and Jesus says these words at the height of the festival when all the people would have been there and he talks about this beautiful picture of living living water and and we know from other places he's described it like to the woman at the well um, and, and he says remembering God's faithfulness was so important that they'd move out to do this day-to-day thing and he and he want day-to-day this kind of seven week seven day journey to sit here and into the shelter Jesus stands up and says this great proclamation because what he wants them to understand is now my story my life can be found in you and so what what we see out of the Festival of Tabernacle is this coming in and a going out. See, the festival was a chance to come together. There was this thing called Yom Kippur. It was the Day of Atonement, where there was a writing of all the sin in our life because there had to be a moment, a defined moment, where we came clean so that we as the people of God could go back out. See, God wants to bring us in to deal with the sin so that we can be part of the solution in going back out. That's what the whole picture was. Don't forget that you're the people of God who came out of Egypt because I wanted to send you into all of the world. This is God's message. And I'm not sending you out without resource. You will be for me like living water. There will be something restoration. There will be something that looks like redemption. There will be something that looks like hope and healing. But it starts with our own inventory. And so the Festival of Tabernacle was a very tangible, concrete, visceral reminder of who they'd been individually and collectively. And so they came together for fasting and for communal repentance. And it's just reminding themselves. So what do we do at Easter every year? Is Easter simply a static holiday? Oh, 2,000 years later, let's just remember that Jesus died. Or is Easter about a living faith that you and I can be born again and again and again? And so the areas of, in our lives that actually need to die, we're given new life. This is the same thing unfolding. So in some ways, the Festival of Tabernacle was like this agricultural harvest festival, not unlike Thanksgiving. In other ways, it's like our Easter today, where we come not just as this commemorate a, a historic holiday, it's to celebrate the notion that you can be born again, that you can begin again, that you can experience God's grace in a way that you never have before. This is the story of God's redemption. 
Um, and so what I would simply say is Jesus again and again starts to stand up and he says, these aren't just my words. What he's wanting us to understand is my life is not my own. My teaching is not my own. My authority is not my own is what he says in verse 34. What he's saying is, let God be in you so that God can flow through you. So one of the things we try and practice with great intentionality is this idea of a rhythm of hospitality. And you think, well, hospitality, what is that? Here's how I define it for our church, for our faith expression. In some cases, hospitality is making room for another. I think that requires great discipline because all of us have walked on on a group that felt like a very strong clique of friends who had a deep history together and liked each other. We felt like we were crashing someone else's party. I think there's a discipline for the people of God to simply make room for others. The other half of hospitality is our learning to receive from others. If you need a context for this, look in Luke chapter 10 where Jesus sends out the disciples and he says, you're going like sheep among wolves. Um, don't take any extra sandals. Don't take a money belt. Don't take an extra coat, but go and look for the friendly eyes, the people of peace. Look for the ones that I've prepared in advance for you. This is hospitality. Some have referred to this as evangelism. I would simply say what Jesus said was learn to proclaim the kingdom of God, which is simply talk about the difference that Christ is making in you. That if you would have known my life back then, but if you would know it today, you would see a difference. I think God has invited us to have a living faith, to deal with our own sin, not our inadequacy, because we're already accepted and to send us back out to be a part of God's solution in a broken world. And so as we gear up for, uh, for Lent together and this practice of hospitality next Friday, I want to give you some suggestions uh, as we go. But I also want to just do this. Before we begin to start to give, I want to call us to the Lord's table. Because maybe the first thing we can start to say that's not my own, it's not my own table. It's all a gift from God. Even though I can work and put food on my table, I can work to put food in the pantry, and it doesn't actually seem like I need God. What I need is the reminder that God is the source of all of it. And so no better way talks to us about God as the source than communion tonight. And so maybe just in these moments, we do some prayer of examination. We have a moment where we just kind of take spiritual inventory about what's going on in our own hearts. We think about the conversations over the last week. We think about the motives of our own heart. And we're conscious of God stirring in us and we just begin to name it. We begin to name our doubts. We begin to name our fears. We begin to name our resentment. We begin to name our unforgiveness. But God says, this is my table. All are welcome at it. But do this with thanksgiving. Do it in remembrance of me. But do it with the notion of reconciliation in mind. So before we go out, I wanted us to have a time to close our service in worship, 
but in examination and in participation. Joel, if you would just come up and you would lead us through some prayers, I would encourage you as you listen to the sound of her voice and as she guides us into this time of reflection and examination, that you would just allow the Holy Spirit to just speak to your own hearts. We don't have a festival of tabernacles, but we do have the communion table together. We do have the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit to kind of allow our hearts and our minds to become active to those prompts, to those hesitations, uh, and to those, uh, to, to those suggestions that might be something we need to name and address. So would you just guide us through a prayer as we go into this time of worship?